Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, a lot going on in the presidential race, Donald Trump. Uh, for those of you that live in the suburbs, I guess take a look around and enjoy the last view you'll have because uh, he's trying to suggest that Joe Biden will eliminate the suburbs. So uh, um, I always think in politics um, and in business or any endeavor, sports, it's always a mistake to underestimate your opponent. Sometimes you can reflexively uh, just assume what they're doing is dumb or is not going to work. And you have to take a minute and say, well, why do they think it's smart? what they're doing. But in this case, I, I just don't understand it. it. It is such a wild assertion. I'm not even sure that would have worked in 1968. Even Richard Nixon was more subtle. But it shows that Trump knows uh, their hemorrhaging in the suburbs is real. It's not fake polls. Um, and it's kind of his clumsy and ham-handed attempt, I guess, to suggest he wants to fight back. But I think that that bears watching. I mean, maybe I'm wrong and it'll be effective. And they're starting to run ads. And, you know, Trump sending, you know, troops into cities, I don't think because he's worried about protecting citizens. It's because he wants his storyline. So it'll be bear close watching, but uh, I'm dubious uh, that it'll work. I think, uh, you know, I talked about this uh, last week. Joe Biden continues to fill in the picture about what he's going to do as president and, you know, starting to do that with, you know, he's got 60 second advertisements in, in the core battleground states. He gave a really important, I think, uh, speech and laid out a plan today uh, around the home health care industry and, and workers and uh, really rewarding that work, more importantly. So, um, you know, I think um, it's not just the build back better and buy American. I think that was really strong, and I think that'll be a part of his message going forward. But things like home health care, I, I think we're going to see more of that going forward. And that's really important because uh, there's still a lot to fill in as it relates to both who Joe Biden is from a biographical and value standpoint, uh, but I think even more importantly, um, from a policy standpoint and, and who he's going to fight for and, and what he's going to fight for if he's elected president. Um, you continue to see Donald Trump malign vote by mail. You know, I've talked about this on the podcast with various is, is guests. Uh, it is abhorrent that he's doing it. And there's no doubt, you know, he is trying to, you know, make it harder for people to vote. He's got allies in states doing that. But I think we're starting to see in, in polls an interesting thing, which is his quarter core base less likely to vote by mail. Um, so I think he's doing real damage because he is going to need, you know, the majority of his vote to vote by mail as well. Uh, and I do think it's interesting you don't see many other Republicans following his lead on this because they know that. They, they need these people to vote by mail. Um, and so um, I think that's going to bear close watching as well because if there's a huge delta between you know, potential Biden voters and Trump voters in terms of, you know, how they plan to vote. Uh, I think that could really hurt uh, Donald Trump. But, you know, that remains my largest concern. I, I do think we're in the race right now is Joe Biden uh, is doing about as well with swing voters as you could have ever hoped. Maybe there's a little bit more room to grow, but it's really now about trying to maintain the enviable position he's now in with seniors and suburban voters and college-educated voters across the board. Uh, but we know that it's going to be more complicated, you know, come late September. And, it's, and it is important to mention that six weeks from now, you know, voters in some battleground states like Pennsylvania and Michigan can start voting by mail. You know, you'll begin to see, you know, in eight weeks from now, many more states. So, you know, we've got about a little less than 15 weeks until the election. Um, but that's the wrong way to look at it. You know, people are going to start voting um, in the end of September all the way through uh, November 3rd. And so that's important organizationally. All of you who are thinking about volunteering, just don't wait until the end of the election. We, we want to be talking to people as they're making their uh, decisions to vote and in many cases voting. And it's really important for the campaigns because you don't have until November November 2nd, or even till the last debate to perfect your message, both on your behalf and against your opponent. You really need to have that largely done 
by late September. Uh, so as people are voting, you think you've given them the best case. So I'm eager to dive into all of these numbers with our guest today. We're going to talk to John Anzalone, a longtime Democratic pollster, uh, partner in Anzalone List Research. Um, he lives in Montgomery, Alabama. I've worked closely with John uh, through the years. He's serving as Joe Biden's chief pollster. He was involved in Hillary's races, uh, deeply involved in the Obama races, where he polled uh, Florida uh, and many other states for us. And I really want to talk to John about what he's seeing in the electorate with swing voters, with base voters, some of the attitudes towards Joe Biden um, that they need to strengthen, you know, whether Donald Trump has an ability to repair some of the damage, some of the complications they might be seeing in their research around uh, voting by mail and, and just the execution uh, of voting. So I'm really excited uh, for all of you to get kind of a bird's eye view. A lot of you, I'm sure, like our friend John Favreau, uh, follow the polar coaster and, and look at polls day to day. But John and, and his team and, and the Biden campaign are obviously having a window into the American electorate and particularly battleground state voters every day. So uh, it's an opportunity for you to, to really understand what the Biden campaign is seeing and where they see this race heading uh, here as we get into the stretch drive. So I, I think you'll love this conversation with John Anzalone, who, uh, in addition to you know just being a great pollster, also his firm's based in the South, and he's always done a lot of research work in the South, in the Plain States. So he has, a, I think, a really good sense, too, of you know places where we used to do better than we are today as a party. And we have to do better going forward, not just in 2020, but throughout the next decade, so that we're more competitive in state legislative chambers and governor's races and U.S. Senate races. So we, we've got a higher ceiling, um, and we don't have regions of the country uh, that we've just written off uh, for decades, because that's no way for us. To, to head into this next decade and, and kind of build the you know progressive power we need to build. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Anzalone. John Anzalone, welcome to Campaign HQ. David Pluff, always good to hear your voice. Yeah, you you and I met uh, first back in Iowa back in the eighties. Not to date ourselves, but uh, Anzo. So let me start with this. Let's talk about swing voters for a minute. Obviously, Joe Biden is doing um, incredibly well in public polls. I'd assume he's also doing well in your own polling, correct? Yeah, I think that it's fair to say that we're seeing a lot of what the public polls are showing that, you know, this is in some ways. I mean, you've seen you've been through a lot of presidential campaigns. And as you said, we've been in this together for over 30 years. So we've seen a lot of historical data. Um, and quite frankly, what we're seeing right in the public polls and, and internal is uh, pretty historic. Right. So let's start with what we might consider the swing voter side of the uh, ledger, and then we'll talk about some of the turnout and registration targets. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you and I have been part of campaigns where if we lost white seniors by 20 points, we were ecstatic. Right. You guys uh, right now, uh, you know, with white seniors are tied, uh, which means with seniors overall, you're ahead. Talk about that. Like, why is that? How much of that do you think could be maintained over the next 15 weeks? Yeah, I think that there's a couple things. You know, when we take a look at swing voters. Um, there's actually like four really important groups that, you know, everyone wants to compare um, how Biden's doing in public pollings with Hillary. Um, but what's really interesting about key groups that have moved from 16 is that Biden's not only doing much better and leading in most polling with um, voters over 65, but he's leading with suburbanites, he's leading with independents, and he's leading with um, uh, white college voters. And so those are like four really important groups that not only did Trump win, but as, as you know, Romney won, right? And so listen, every one of these presidential candidates 
has a different coalition. I mean, people like to talk about the Obama coalition, and it's important. But Biden's coalition is going to look different. Um, and clearly, part of this started in 2018, where we saw suburban um, women, uh, suburban white women, college-educated women, but also college-educated uh, men uh, really move. I mean, take a look at uh, Gretchen Whitmer, who is a, um, a, a client of ours in places like Oakland County, right? Um, she also won Macomb County, you know, Reagan Democrats, which is interesting, which also Biden won uh, in the primary. So we're seeing these swing voters, um, these groups that um, Biden is bringing around uh, that is different than the coalitions that we've seen in the past, while at the same time narrowing margins within the Republican base um, with white voters uh, and also rural voters uh, and keeping on par with our Democratic base, right, with young voters uh, and women. And so, uh, you know, when you, you, of course, you know, 2008, you, you saw this. I mean, when you are moving and you have a moment or if you sustain that moment, uh, you tend to do well almost everywhere, meaning that even in the Republican base vote of rural voters and things like that, you tend to narrow the margins and narrowing the margins in tough places uh, is just as important uh, as um, doing well in some of these other swing areas. Now, just specifically on seniors, I think, listen, you know, we see Trump's job rating um, just getting worse and worse. Uh, on handling the coronavirus uh, epidemic, uh, pandemic. Uh, clearly, seniors um, are the most vulnerable. They're the most at risk. Um, and I think that they're reacting directly to that risk in terms of feeling like he didn't take it serious enough. He didn't listen to medical experts. He didn't have a plan. Um, and now with the kind of the surge, um, feel like he's put his head in the sand. And I think it's just cost him dearly with that largest age bracket, uh, those voters 65 and overs. The last Democratic presidential candidate to win 65 and over is Al Gore. So that kind of gives you an idea um, of how important this is. Yeah. And a reminder that every election is its unique beast. So uh, on whether it's seniors, uh, suburban voters, you mentioned both college educated women and men, uh, Joe Biden right now doing extremely well. Two questions for you, John. Do you think he's close to his ceiling there? And, and the job really for your campaign is to maintain those numbers? Do you think there's room to grow? And secondly, just how durable do you think it is? Do you think that some of these voters are already locked in and it's going to be really hard for Trump to dislodge them? You get a feeling that where we are today um, is very difficult for Trump. Uh, and listen, first of all, we should all say we, we all have a collective PTSD, right, from 2016. And so none of us are getting over our skis. But at the same time, you know, you have to acknowledge the good polls because, you know, there's a couple things that are different from where Joe Biden is from past Democratic uh, nominees, including Barack Obama in eight and 12 in that he's also at 50%, right? Uh, at this point in time, whatever, what 104 days in, um, you know, there's been no uh, Democrat or Republican candidate, um, you can go all the way back to 2000, who's reached that threshold. And so, you know, that's really important. The other part is, is that Joe Biden isn't scary to voters. I mean, that's one reason he's leading with independence. And if you take a look at Oh, I don't know. The NBC poll, I think, is is a good example or, or, or some, one of the most recent ones where um, I think it's the Fox poll 
where Biden is actually above water on popularity. Uh, naturally, Trump is underwater, but Trump's very unfavorable is at 47 percent. Um, and Biden's, I think, is at 31. There's been one thing that I think when they write about Joe Biden in the primary and the general election is the stability of his vote. Right. It really hasn't moved that much. I mean, Trump's has moved down uh, during the primary. I mean, where Biden kind of started at the beginning, he ended at the end. It was very stable. Other people moved all around. But Joe Biden was incredibly stable. And I think that we're going to see that same dynamic here. And we have really uh, in the last several months is that Joe Biden's vote has been incredibly stable. Um, it's inched up a couple points to the 50 percent mark. Uh, Trump's has moved down. Right. Uh, and that is that is a good thing. Um, but the stability is important for Joe Biden. One is how voters view him and two, how voters view uh, Trump. You know, there was the I think it was the NBC poll that showed 50 percent of voters said there was no chance at all that they would vote for Trump. And so your question is, you know, <clears throat> will Biden's numbers um, remain stable? And there just seems to be a universe of voter that is completely cut off from Trump. Um, and it's because of how people view him. Prior, let's think about this, let's dissect this. Prior to the pandemic, people, you know, we always heard the same thing in focus groups, whether it was, you know, for, for Biden or for a US Senate race or for a congressional race, is that people disliked his behavior, his tweeting, his bullying, he was a jerk. Um, they basically just didn't like him as a human being. But hey, you know, they like some of his agenda and his policies. They like how he took on the media and shook things up in Washington, D.C. Now, their problem with him is not only behavior, how he reacted and, uh, and, uh, to the protests and things like that is doubling down to of racism. But their main problem is, is that they feel that he failed the leadership test on the three crises, whether it was the health pandemic crisis whether it was the police brutality protest crisis and now the economic crisis, which is hurting his economic numbers. And so they're now viewing him, uh, his biggest problem isn't just his behavior, which they haven't forgotten. It's his lack of leadership or his mishandling of these crises. So three and a half years in, they're judging him as president. They're not judging him as a personality. That is his biggest problem right now. And you know, I don't think that, you know, that's going to change. Uh, I think that we have a couple more crises potentially coming very soon. College kids and um, K through 12 kids start going to school in mid-August. Um, and, you know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be really uh, a really tense time. I think it's going to uh, be a problem for a, a lot of communities, a lot of states, a lot of households. Um, and that is a problem they're going to uh, squarely put um, on Trump because he didn't take this serious at the beginning. He didn't listen to medical experts. He didn't have a plan. And that's a problem. I mean, we have more crises coming, quite frankly. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And your point about his very unfavorable. I mean, if he's sailing into voting time in late September and October with 47 percent unfavorable in battlegrounds, um, he's really up against a, a wall there. So, John, I think one of the mistakes sometimes you can make in whether it's politics or business is your opponent or your competition does something, puts out an ad or a new strategy. And, you know, you're like, well, that's dumb. And of course, I've learned like you better st 
take a minute and yeah. think through why they think it's smart. Right. But on, on this suburban thing, what's, what strikes me, it's almost like Trump got a briefing saying you're hemorrhaging in the suburbs. And he's like, oh, I know what I'll say. I'm going to say Joe Biden's going to destroy the suburbs. So, like, right. do you see any evidence that, that that, you know, tactic, which seems to be front and center for Trump and his campaign now, has any chance of succeeding? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that, you know, you and I have been through a lot of campaigns. And when you're in a campaign where you're behind and you're behind by eight or 10 points, what do you do? You just kind of start throwing things at the wall. And he tends to throw things at the wall. I mean, you know, in one week, he's hitting us on China. I mean, all paid TV. The next week, he's hitting us on, you know, NAFTA. Uh, now he's hitting us on defunding uh, the police. Um, and so they try a lot of different things out, right? Um, but the fact is, is that Trump was up on TV in the battleground states for a couple months prior to us, I mean, he, I'm not sure what the, the number is, but I think it's close to $50 million. We never saw the numbers move. I mean, you see that in the public polling, right? I mean, our numbers actually got better. His numbers got worse, even though he was on TV by himself at very high levels, uh, as well as with his allies. And so, you know, now we're on TV. Uh, so now we're in a position to, you know, have our own message, have our own voice, have uh, voters see what Biden's about, uh, what's his agenda and his vision. Um, and again, we don't see any deterioration. As a matter of fact, if the last 10 days are any indication, and again, we don't, you know, we don't get over our skis on this, but the number of polls that have showed this in double digits um, is a good place to be. It doesn't mean that we're not going to work hard. doesn't mean we don't take anything for granted. We know that we just got to fight for every vote and we know that it's going to get closer because that's what thing, that's, that's just the natural physics of presidential races. Um, but uh, I think that, it, again, it goes to um, the opponent, meaning Joe Biden uh, clearly isn't Hillary Clinton. You were talking about very unfavorables. In 2016, Trump's very unfavorable was 47 percent and Hillary's was 45 percent. So there was a lesser of two evils dynamic going on. You always see this kind of analysis of what they call double haters, people who dislike both candidates. Well, you can't call them double haters this time uh, because they are they hate Trump, but they just kind of dislike Joe Biden or they dislike his politics, right? And so his very unfavorable with that group is, you know, literally, uh, I think it's a quarter of, of Trump's and he wins that group by 40 plus points depending on the poll that you see. And that's actually really important. Again, they don't see Joe Biden as scary. They see him as a compassionate, relatable guy. Um, you know, they like the fact that he's lunch pal Joe, and he's a guy who's going to look out uh, for working families. Um, and he is, you know, someone that when the Trump and their allies uh, throw punches, uh, you know, they, they, they're, they're not sticking like they are sticking in past presidential campaign. Right. So I want to talk about filling in the blanks on Joe Biden, which you guys have, have started to do, but I want on, I want to talk about battlegrounds for a minute. So you, you made an important point, which is 
you know, when you've got momentum in a campaign, particularly a national campaign, you see, you know, you you see progress everywhere. It's just not in a, a particular state or region. So, I, a couple questions: one, are you seeing with swing voters in particular, are you seeing um, the same strength for Joe Biden in the South, in the Midwest, in the West? And I guess, secondly, you know, I would have thought, let's say, ninety days ago, one hundred twenty days ago, you know, Trump's floors and floor and battlegrounds, you know, maybe forty six. It looks like it may be lower. So, what do you think his floors? I mean, I agree with you that you know when you see a poll right now that shows Biden 50-40, you know, the other 10%'s got to go somewhere. And, you know, probably more of that comes so to Trump than it goes to you guys because you're bumping up against a pretty pretty good and healthy ceiling. But I'm curious kind of wh- where you see both, is there uniformity in terms of the movement across the country? And uh, secondly, um, kind of where do you see Trump's floor now? Yeah. Well, I, I do think that there's, again, we, we, you know, you can talk about Joe Biden's ceiling, but really, when you look at it historically, all the way back to 2000, it's just presidential candidates' ceilings, right? I mean, there's not a lot of presidential candidates who've gotten over 50%, who've won, right? Um, and so the fact that we're in this divided country, and there are third-party candidates um, who siphon off um, uh, a universe, hopefully it won't be as much as 2016, and we don't think that it will be. Um, but the ceiling... Uh, is is just is almost uh, is, is is close to fifty or a little above for almost everyone, right? I mean that just kind of historically is how it's happened. Um, in the battleground states, like you you say, I mean whether it's Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, I mean he's having trouble getting to the mid forties, right? I mean he in the places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in the real clear politics or the five thirty eight average of polls. He's sitting at 41 and 42 percent. Now, Florida and Arizona and, and um, North Carolina are, are kind of going to act like Florida and North Carolina and Arizona. They're, they're always going to be tighter, right? I mean, like Scott Arsenault always says, Florida tight. Um, and that's true. Now, we haven't, you know, we have a lead that's above the margin of error. That hasn't happened very often. Um, I think that you and I have done enough Florida uh, politics and polling to know that that is a state that tends to tighten up. Um, Again, I think that we have uh, an advantage there because of how we're doing with seniors. Uh, And we're competing, David. I mean, you know, it's like this campaign is going to look a lot like you, you know, to you like 2008 because of where we're competing. Um, You know, they they announced expansion in the media markets in Florida. Well, where do you want to see? I mean, I remember 2008 like it was yesterday. and We were we were up on TV at high levels competing with McCain where? Panama City, Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Gainesville. We were fighting the fight in the panhandle, right? And, you know, I mean, protect every, you know, protect I-4 and all that type of stuff. You got to do well, Miami-Dade, uh, Palm Beach, et cetera. But when you see a campaign competing against the Republican in the Republican areas, um, that's what you got to do to win a place like Florida. Uh, and a lot of campaigns um, often have to make the cost benefit analysis or make the bad decisions. Um, and this campaign, because it's been under great leadership uh, and they're raising a lot of money, gives you the ability to run the race you need to run to win. Right. 
So uh, I want to just ask you quickly about third party because you mentioned it. And you lived through this horror in 2016 where Trump could win states like Wisconsin with 47.2 percent of the vote because the third party vote share was, you know, higher than historical averages. Right now in your research, and this seems to be true in public research, you're seeing that those numbers may revert more to the 2 percent or less that we've gotten used to. Right. And that's huge because your ceiling is higher than Trump's, I would guess, at this point. Right. And so I think that I think that this is how I look at that. And, you know, I mean, when you poll, when you add third party candidates to polling, they always get more in the poll than they actually do on Election Day. Right. I mean, that's just kind of the dynamic. And so, you know, you have to you have to test things a bunch of different ways. But I think that there's one thing that we all kind of instinctively know that in 2016, there were um, a lot of voters. Um, Bernie voters, uh, et cetera, who stayed at home, who voted for Gary Johnston, voted for Jill Stein, and 99% of them who vote, did one of those three things were 99% sure that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. And so they were doing a protest vote. Um, those voters now um, know what's at stake <laughs> and they're um, uh, you know, their, their enthusiasm, if you will, uh, to get vote or get, get Trump out of office is incredibly high. It's incredibly intense. And so I think that that dynamic and quite frankly, um, how Bernie Sanders, uh, and his campaign and the Joe Biden and his campaign have worked together on a plethora of issues, um, will make the dynamics here, uh, much different. Uh, so we don't see that bleed. And, and internally, we see that. I mean, we see that, you know, Joe Biden just does better with, with Bernie voters than Hillary uh, Clinton did in 2016. Well, if this does tighten up, that's going to be such an important dynamic. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, you mentioned, uh, you know, the Biden campaign um, has a very expansive electoral map. Again, something we might not have expected four months ago. Um, and, you know, those are pretty weighty decisions. And you're involved in those decisions with General Malley Dillon and, and Mike Donnell and other leadership in the campaign. But, you know, John, when you think about the places that look now plausible, you know, he may not win them. But, you know, Georgia, another poll out in Texas today publicly had Biden up right. by one. Ohio, Iowa. Those are likely not going to be, in my view, you know, his 270th electoral vote. But do you think there's a scenario where you could get surprised where maybe you don't win in North Carolina and you win in Georgia? Or is there really a stack ranking on these states? Well, as you know, there's always a stack ranking. And you were at the, you know, genesis in 2012 uh, of analytics, right? And so there's a, there's a lot of simulations, things that, you know, you and I didn't learn about, uh, growing up in this business. And there's, and there's tipping points, uh, states and things like that. I think that at the end of the day, uh, again, the leadership of this campaign is incredibly focused and disciplined. And you can see where we're buying TV. It's public and it's always, you know, reported on. And, you know, we're very focused on the six, uh, battleground states. Um, and, you know, until, uh, you know, they move on to another state, we will be focused on those six states uh, in a very disciplined way, because that is the ball game. I think that what's difficult for Trump is that he's not only communicating in those six states, he is playing defense right now in Ohio and Iowa. So he is spending a lot of money in Ohio and Iowa, just protecting himself. Uh, he's also up in Nevada, 
right? Which I don't understand, but you know. Right. And so he's the one that is actually expending a lot of money um, in, and I can't say it's in an undisciplined way. He is in trouble. And so he has to expand his, he has to protect and he has to expand. Um, but right now, um, the Joe Biden campaign is very disciplined and very focused. And, you know, will there be expansion states? You know, there's a big map on the wall, just like there is, you know, in 2008 and 12 and 16. But you got to be careful and you have to be very analytical about doing that. So let's talk about the other side of, of the equation here, which is uh, voters that we still need to register or we're worried won't turn out. That's all complicated because of the pandemic. We have a lot of people who've never voted by mail before. You know, I'm sure you took great interest in some of the June primary numbers where seven, eight percent of ballots in some states were spoiled. So uh, and, and your insight in this, obviously, you know, you've got your own polling, you've got folks on your analytics and data team, um, you've got your field organizers, but w- w- what are you seeing there? I mean, it does seem that the enthusiasm levels for Biden are rising. You obviously want to continue to see that happen. But uh, is there anything that that worries you in terms of a part of the electorate where there's still going to be, uh, you know, important work to do to shore up, you know, both their intention to vote, but also making sure they're able to do it accurately so their vote gets counted? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think that the the things that keep you up at night, um, as in every campaign, is who shows up, right? Um, and the who shows up question is so much more complicated now um, because of the pandemic um, and, you know, whether people will feel comfortable going uh, to polling places in person, uh, whether or not they'll be able to navigate, quite frankly, some really difficult state laws to vote uh, by um, by mail, uh, and whether some of the states will actually change their laws, right, uh, and allow it. Uh, Alabama is the perfect example. Uh, they stepped up. They have, you know, you can't, you have to have an excuse to vote by mail, and they changed it. Now you can just check the box, uh, and anyone can vote by mail. That's really important. That's not a battleground state. In a place like North Carolina, when the Republicans took control of the legislature, they did everything to decimate uh, and make voting harder, both by limiting the early voting places, by limiting the number of days and hours you could vote early, but also making it really difficult to vote by absentee and you have to have a witness and, you know, all of these type of things, two witnesses, I think. And so the again, it's the who shows up, the combination of Republicans systematically trying to make it more difficult uh, for uh, populations to vote, but also the pandemic. And so this is a campaign that is laser focused on this, right? Uh, and, it, you know, there are, there are programs um, uh, with great intensity uh, to make sure that not only our people get out to vote if it's in person, uh, but that they have the alternative to vote in mail, which can often, again, uh, be difficult to do, to do. And there's also, you know, parts of our coalition uh, and rightfully so, African-Americans being number one and young people who worry about mail-in votes of whether their vote will actually be counted, like you said, the number of spoiled votes. The one thing that I think that we all you know, feel good about in a tough situation is when you take a look at the number of people who voted in Kentucky, the number of people who voted in the Georgia primary, the, the two and three hours that they were willing to stand in line to vote 
uh, is, you know, would make John Lewis proud, quite frankly, you know, and, and so I think that the, 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 the we like to say it in enthusiasm. I, I, I hate that word in terms of voting, but the intensity or, you know, what, what people believe is at stake to drive them to make sure they vote is going to be at historic levels. And it's going to be at historic levels for Democrats. We saw it in 2018. We saw it in our primary in 2020. And we're seeing in some of these state primaries as well. Um, so I think that there's a lot, there's a lot of signals there, a lot of signs there. Um, that something is going on, even in a very difficult environment to vote, uh, that is going to that is going to benefit us. Right, but it is a, it is a you know every campaign uh, you know even in the most ideal circumstances, you know it's it's one thing to have professed support. It's even you know one thing to have people who say I'm registered, I'm going to vote. But then can you materialize that and vote? And now there's just an added complication, right? To your point, you're going to have to do quite a bit of just raw education, right? If you're in this state, you need a stamp, and if you're in this state, you got to sign the envelope and the ballot. So and 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 it is complex. So uh, I'm curious um, when you look at. Um, Trump. So here's someone who's shown zero interest in growing his support traditionally. You know, normally someone gets into the White House with 46.1 percent of the vote. You'd say the first thing I want to do is get the support of more people who didn't vote for me. So they clearly think they can base their way to the election. It would seem to me, though, John, that, you know, the registration and turnout they want to do. And there are a lot of people who look just like Trump's base in battleground states who aren't registered or not habitual voters. But his approval ratings uh, have to hurt there too, right? The 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 motivation for someone who's not not you know going to vote for Joe Biden, but the question is, are they going to register? Are they going to turn out for Trump? Um, it's not just hurting him with swing voters. That's got to hurt a little bit, and and all it takes is for it to hurt a little bit because I'm sure he's trying to what he got one point one million four hundred thousand votes in Wisconsin. I'm sure they think they could win if they got a million six hundred fifty thousand. Um, you know, kind of the Bush 04 playbook in Ohio. But 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 this has got to hurt him in terms of his base play as well, it would seem to me. Are, are you seeing any evidence of that? You know, I guess I think that we all believe that there's going to be historic turnout. Um, the, the question is, is that does he have any more to get out? Right. And we don't No one knows. I mean, no one knows the answer to this, quite frankly. But if 2018 is any indication of the number of people who have never voted in a midterm election or just new voters in general um, that brought back the House, that got us, you know, you know, Democratic governors replacing Republican governors in places like Michigan and Nevada, et cetera. Um, and again, kind of the historic level of turnout in the Democratic presidential primary. I will bet on us this time. I will bet on, you know, our <clears throat> operation um uh getting new voters out versus his operation and there's a lot of money and again not necessarily biden for president money but there's a lot of organizational money i mean listen the reason georgia's in play is partially because stacy abrams you know got you know created a infrastructure in the state of georgia right um and that infrastructure is still there uh and it will um benefit uh, uh, Joe Biden. And you can kind of do that all over the place. Um, the other thing I would say is, is that, you know, the broader the, the universe in polling, meaning if you have likely voters and then you have, you know, registered voters, then you just have all voters. Biden does better. The bigger you get, Biden does better. Right. And so I think a big turnout, again, uh, benefits Biden in this political environment where people have written off 
uh, Donald Trump because of what they've seen uh, and lack of presidential leadership uh, in, you know, the handling of these three crises in the last four months. Right. So let's talk about some of the work you guys are doing to fill in the Biden side of the ledger. Uh, I think it always surprises people who, who follow politics closely that people who they know intimately well, uh, you know, the, the voters that determine general elections don't. Right. I mean, I'm, you know, you remember back in 08 when we came out of the primary with Hillary Clinton and we turned our attention to polling and, and surveying general election voters. They didn't really know much about Obama. Then he was black and he was running for president. And then we you know, had to run a lot of biography. So Joe Biden, you know, to your point, um, you know, they know something about him because they're comfortable with him. They know he was VP. But um, it seems like there is an opportunity uh, right now in terms of his biography, um, you know, his plans for the future, probably more important than his, his his past record to really fill that in, particularly because Trump has not been able to settle on any message against Biden to try and define a much less an effective one. So what's your guys thought and strategy there? Well, listen, I, I think that you're seeing it right. I mean, it's, it's you know, Joe Biden for for a better America. And, and you've seen this, I think, brilliant rollout by the campaign about you know, building back better on the economy. I mean, we are we are competing on the economy. Uh, if you take a look again at the Fox poll, the morning consult just came out today. The biggest problem that Trump has right now is that his advantage, his oxygen on the economy has evaporated. And so in both of those polls, the who do you trust in the economy is now dead even. And so we're competing on a really important um, part uh, of what is his strength. Okay. So in, in some ways we're taking a playbook or a page out of his playbook, um, there. Naturally, you're also seeing, you know, just again in our, in our communications, you know, that he's going to be, Joe Biden's going to be a better leader on handling the pandemic. And that, that is important, uh, as well. But I think that you're right. I think that there's things that people don't know about Joe Biden. They're going to find out. I think they mostly, like you said, want to know about his agenda and his vision and what he's going to do. And I think that we're doing a really good job at the beginning here of laying that out. And there's a there's so much more. Um, uh, there's so much more to go. The other thing I think that is really important is that people get a sense that Joe Biden is a good guy. Like he is a relatable, compassionate guy. Um, some people certainly know about the tragedies that he uh, has gone through. Some people know kind of about, you know, the Scranton uh, upbringing. And so there is a sense that, you know, these voters have lived, you know, that he's lived their lives. Uh, and I think that you're going to see some about some of that as well. Um, but you're also going to see, again, on the economics front, which you remember in 2012, you know, you had to remind people uh, where, you know, how bad it was uh, that when Obama came in and, you know, there was literally ads on charts and graphs and unemployment and things like that. And so I think that there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a reminder here that Joe Biden's done this before, that he was in charge of the Recovery Act, that President Obama uh, put him uh, in charge of it. We, you see that in ads right now, uh, and then laying out what he's going to do. And so voters want to know what you're going to do. And so I think you're going to see a lot of Joe Biden. You're going to see a lot of his vision, uh, a lot of his agenda but also get the feel of, of who this guy is, that he's the right guy, you know, to unite and heal the nation as well. Right. I'm curious, John, uh, you've obviously throughout your career, because the economy is always central to politics, um, have become an expert on how voters view the economy. I think one of Joe Biden's strengths is he just intuitively 
um, understands the economy in a way the average person does, right? Uh, and, you know, remember back in 2012 when we were running for re-election in a tough economy, the fact that the stock market um, had increased was not a reason to vote for Barack Obama, right? Uh, and and Trump, you know, uh, uh, you know, he sees the, you know, through the stock market, he sees it through big business. You know, he talks about giving, you know, tax breaks for people to do big restaurant meals, which is not how anybody who going to decide this election really thinks about the economy. But it might be interesting for listeners like, and it's more complicated now because we're in a pandemic and we've got recession level unemployment. But how does the average person view the economy when it's going well, when it's not kind of what are the cues? Because it does seem to be this is a natural advantage for your campaign and Joe Biden, just because he so naturally talks about the economy in a way that's accessible to people. Well, I think the big thing right now is that voters did not think that they were going to be where they are at the end of July when this all started kind of happening at the beginning of April. And so we're seeing a lot of stress, right? I mean, there is economic anxiety and stress. And it's a huge, just a again, kind of national collective problem, almost a psychological problem with people. And so this is one of the reasons his numbers on the economy have vanished, right? I mean, nearly 60% of the voters feel that his mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic has made the economy worse. They also know, and you've seen this in public polling, that about 60% of people think that he looks out for big corporations and the wealthy instead of people like them. And so at the end of the day, a lot of times these campaigns and these races comes down to whose side that you're on. And voters believe at a pretty high rate that Joe Biden is looking out for working families and that Donald Trump is looking out for big corporations and the wealthy. And, you know, you're going to see that uh, being driven. I mean, that is an important, whether it's implicit or explicit contrast. And it's not one that you have to contrive. It's one that people believe. And so you just need to reinforce it. And you're already seeing that uh, in how we communicate. Right. And so you mentioned that um, Trump has lost his lead on the economy. Um, you know, he's trailing badly on measures. You just mentioned who's Saudi on Joe Biden's got a big lead. Who's better on health care? Joe Biden's got a good lead. Who's a better person? You know, Joe Biden's got a good lead. Who's who would be better able to handle the pandemic? So it, it, if you head into the election or let's not even say election, head into late September, early October, when people start voting in these battlegrounds and the numbers are as they are now, which is your tide on the economy, it would seem to me, given your measure, uh, your strength um, on those other measures, you're in pretty good shape. If you're able to take a lead, though, on the economy, let's say five, eight points, I'm not sure you could go. That would seem to be almost checkmate for Trump. Yeah, listen, I think, you know, when I take a look at certain things, you mentioned early on in this podcast, you know, where we are with seniors, Trump won by seven points. Okay, we're dead even or we're winning. I'm just think about how this extrapolates out if we, you know, if Trump only wins by three, right? right I mean, right. that is a huge difference, right? And so if at one point, I think in, in the Fox poll, they showed in February, Trump's job rating on the economy was 54%. And now it's, you know, like 47. Again, we're not looking to get greedy. But if you're holding Donald Trump, who people think is, you know, he's a business guy, and he did great on the economy, et cetera, et cetera. If you can keep him dead even, if you can compete on the economy, which we are doing, and we're already on TV doing that, and we can make that contrast about who, who's looking out for you and your family, um, that is a really 
difficult and bad day for Donald Trump. Right. And would you say, John, at, at this point in the race, it seems that enough voters um, have made the decision that they're not really excited about rehiring Donald Trump. Right. So to kind of close the deal here, is it just to intensify that or do you think it's to increase the number of people who affirmatively say, I'm actually pretty excited to hire Joe Biden as president? Yeah. I mean, it's it's always a little bit of both. Clearly, there's allies out there who, you know, beat up Donald Trump every day and kind of reinforce to keep the reinforcement of of how people feel about him. But listen, it's incumbent upon this campaign and Joe Biden, right, um, to fill in the blanks, like you said uh, earlier. Um, and that's going to happen. That's an important part of any presidential campaign. You, you, you talked about it in 2008. Um, they know he was VP uh, and they instinctively like him uh, and they know a few data points. But you know, this is a campaign that has 14 more weeks to communicate. Uh, and you may have noticed, like, we're running 60-second commercials. And, you know, you can tell a story in 60 seconds, and that's really important. And I think people are seeing a full story um, from Joe Biden. And they're seeing Joe Biden in these ads as well, uh, which is really important. So, um, you know, we've got 14 more weeks to communicate, to reinforce, to lock down those soft voters, which is always your most important job when you're ahead, right, is to make sure, you know, those don't those voters um, don't leave you. Um, but, you know, Trump has some soft voters as well. And there's some independence. And as you said early on, you don't want people moving uh, to um, a third party candidate and you don't want to get too confident. And this is not this is a campaign that is never going to get too too confident because, again, the entire collective community out there has uh, a PTSD from 2016. So we're just never going to let up. I mean, we're just, you know, this is, you know, you hear it a lot, you know, this pithy, oh, you know, you, you, you run like you're behind. Well, if you went through 2016, you know, you run like you're behind and, you know, you, you, until they call it, um, you're going to sit there and, and, and be fighting. And I think that, you know, Democrats are in just in a different, you know, kind of space right now. We're going to fight for everything. Um, and we're going to compete for everything. And, you know, the stakes just haven't been this high. Um, and, you know, we, we just got a, we got a, we got 104 days. It's a long time and it's a short time, but it mostly feels like a long time if you're me and you and you're doing a campaign. Right. And do you get the sense, not, you know, um, activist Democrats, but, you know, swing voters uh, or maybe some folks who are turnout targets who, you know, don't follow politics that carefully. Uh, do they get the stakes or is that another thing that you guys will need to really work on over the next, you know, 15 weeks is making sure they understand the stakes or is that sort of come to folks naturally? It is. And, and, and that is where you get an assist by the current president. I mean, he provides almost daily, sometimes multiple times a day and certainly weekly, um, what's at stake. I mean, he, he has created, you know, he's just cre you know, created an environment here where, again, it's not just about his personal behavior. It is about his lack of leadership. And people are judging him in a much different way than they were uh, in February. And, and that's, that's trouble for him and that's good for us. And by the way, you know, it, it doesn't hurt that Joe Biden was vice president of the United States for eight years and U.S. senator. And the main trait that people like about him is what? Experience. I mean, that's the word cloud, right? I mean, they think that he has the experience and he's like the right guy to lead the country right now. And so 
you know, this isn't all about Donald Trump. He creates the environment for Joe Biden to take advantage of. But the fact that Joe Biden is a guy who's experienced in their mind is really important. And they think he can make government government work. And guess what? That wasn't a really good trait 10 years ago, uh, but it's a good trait now when they've seen a they've seen a candidate like or a president like Donald Trump who just can't make government work. Right. So, John, you know, you've become uh, an expert, uh, a Ph.D. really on voters in every state in the country, but you have uh, particular expertise uh, in the South. So let's just do a quick let's just give me your top lines. Let's do the two battlegrounds, North Carolina, Florida. Maybe let's throw in Georgia, uh, kind of an outlier, but but looks close, kind of like where's the race now? Uh, What do you see that you're liking? And 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 if, if, if Joe Biden doesn't win them, why would that be? Well, I mean, again, places like North Carolina and more and more like Georgia, and, you know, this is why North Carolina is a battleground state and Ohio has kind of fallen off, is that it is chock full of college-educated voters. Um, You know, it's chock full of, um, you know, almost 50% of the people now, I think 43% of the people that now come from somewhere else weren't born in North Carolina, right? So it's it's not a deep South state. It's it's a, a, you know, a, a new South state as Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, who's a client of ours. Um, but, it, you know, it, it kind of starts and begins in the suburbs, but also has a, a really important and, and good base uh, with African-American voters. Uh, it's the state that has the highest rate increase of, of Latinos. Um, and, you know, we've always done, Democrats have always done well in that populist West, right? You know, kind of the Asheville West, which normally because it's kind of Appalachian, would be like really Republican, right? That's like really Republican area in Ohio or whatever. But it's a, it has a really populist tinge to it. Um, uh, um, and so, you know, listen, there has not been a public poll out um, that hasn't had Biden up a couple points uh, in North Carolina. It's a good place to be. There's not a public poll that hasn't had Cale Cunningham, the U.S. Senate um, candidate. And so you have a governor's race with Cooper's reelection. You have a U.S. Senate race, which is probably the number one race in the country, and then you have a battleground for president. And so, you know, you feel very confident about um, the infrastructure that Barack Obama's campaigns uh, built in 2008 and 2012 that are continuing to, to reap benefits there uh, for Democratic candidates. Um, and, you know, you always have to, you know, you know the, the markets you got to you got to keep a uh, really close eye on Greensboro, right? That's the one that kind of gets squirrely and uh, will we'll get uh, taken away. Um, you know, Dan McCready, who lost the special election, uh, or actually the election, they played it out afterwards. Um, he may have lost it uh, in the Charlotte suburbs, but if you extrapolate that out to the state, uh, you know, that's why you that's why you can see Cal Cunningham, uh, the Democrat, winning. And so... You know, North Carolina is complicated and it's expensive, as you know, because of the media markets, Raleigh, Charlotte, Greensboro, two Greenvilles, Wilmington is just really expensive. Um, but we're there to play and we have a great leadership team there as well. Um, you know, Florida, listen, Florida's, you know, five or six different uh, states and countries. Um, the I-4 corridor is still um, uh, in a lot of ways uh, the swing area. Uh, you know, watch Orlando because there it's kind of a, just a new place with, you know, the refugees from uh, Hurricane Maria and the Puerto Rican community um, increasing there. You have to get that 
you have to get that community to vote at a higher rate, uh, and and that's important, and you can't take them for granted in any way. Um, but all of a sudden, um, Orlando is uh, a little bit more democratic. Uh, Tampa is still the one that you gotta you know fight for every day. And like we said at the beginning uh, of this uh, podcast, you have to fight and narrow the margins uh, in the panhandle, man. You you know, I mean, if you take a look where Charlie Chris lost, if you take a look. You know, I mean, he lost by 70,000 votes and Scott won by 70,000 votes up north. Right. Um, and you have to be a little bit more concerned nowadays in the exurbs, uh, the Tampa exurbs, et cetera, um, where Gillum really got clobbered. But Joe Biden's the right type of candidate. You know, he, again, he, he attracts moderates. Uh, he attracts independents. They look at him differently than national Democrats. And so we're just looking to narrow the margins in those ex-urban counties um, that were a real problem in 2018 for Gillum and quite frankly, uh, for Bill Nelson uh, as well. And in 16 as well. Right. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, and that was the one state where Trump did seem to juice turnout. Yes. Um, was Florida. And yeah. so I'm sure they'll try and build on that. Yeah, no. Well, it'd be great to have Donald Trump lose his new home state, wouldn't it? It would be. Uh, yeah, it would be. It would be amazing. Yeah. And then how about Georgia? Georgia is looking a lot like North Carolina, isn't it? I mean, again, uh, increasing universe of college educated voters, uh, increasing universe of um, uh, people who were not born in Georgia. Uh, Atlanta's media market is incredibly efficient. Um, all of a sudden, the suburbs of um, uh, Atlanta in Cobb County are looking like a, the suburbs in a lot of other states right now. I mean, we picked one up. Uh, one uh, um, seat up uh, last time. We'll probably pick up Georgia seven this time. So the suburbs with suburban women, uh, higher educate, higher educated voters, higher income voters. All of a sudden, the uh, Atlanta suburbs are looking uh, a lot like the suburbs in you know you, you name the, the the state right uh, even up north. Uh, and again. Uh, what Abrams was able to do in terms of building infrastructure. She actually had historic African-American turnout if you look at the absolute numbers. Um, but again, that's another one of those states, not unlike Florida, where when you were running against an African, African-American candidate for governor, there was that countervailing of, of whites coming out as well. Um, and, you know, that is a dynamic that is, as you know, as old as, as it can be. Um, but I think that that just what Abrams was able to do there um, shows you how competitive um, Georgia is. And there hasn't been a public poll that basically hasn't even either shown it dead even or Biden a little ahead. I mean, even Governor Kemp's own pollster, Glenn Bolger, who's a good guy, showed it dead even. So uh, going to be a really interesting state to watch. Right, right. Well, thanks for that uh, tour around the South. I'm curious, John, just a couple more questions for you. So, um, you know, your firm is doing work all over the country. You know, we're all very focused on the presidential, some of these key Senate races. But one of the things that we saw in 18 was, you know, you saw kind of the, the bench emerge, right? And, and a lot of people who, you know, were just normal Americans step up, uh, you know, to run. A lot of them won. A lot of them have talent. I saw, you know, uh, right next to you, the mayor of Shreveport announced uh, he's running for Senate in, in Louisiana. So I'm just curious, like, uh, like, who are the stars out there that you're working with or you're aware of that we should all pay attention to? I know that's a tough question because you'll leave somebody out, but it, yeah. it is. And I will leave someone out. But I got to tell you, I, I got to there's one person that doesn't get enough conversation. 
And that is Doug Jones, the U.S. Senator from Alabama. And may I say the only Democratic Senator in the SEC conference. Um, but he doesn't get enough um, looks. Um, he's going to be running against the former Auburn coach, Tommy Tupperville. And I think that this is one. Listen, I think when good candidate Carvel always taught me this, when good candidates um, stick their neck out in the deep south, you got the Democratic community needs to get around him. Right. Adrian Perkins is a perfect example. I mean, people have to go and watch this guy's announcement. It was terrific. I watched it today. A single mom. He was the president of his class in West Point. He did two tours of Afghanistan and then was like the president of his class in Harvard at law school. I mean, and then went home, uh, had a very Barack Obama story. He had all these offers to the law firm, went home, ran for mayor. Anyway, I mean, it's just important to get behind these guys. Doug Jones did something that was historic, which is, he actually moved the math. He moved the math from 24% of the electorate being African-American to 29%. And he got just what he needed with white voters to win. And it can be done again. Uh, and he is a star uh, and he should absolutely uh, be getting more looks. I mean, listen, there's natural stars like that. Like, how can you not like Amy McGrath and MJ Hagar, right? Again, both, both veterans. Uh, which is just, you know, really important. Um, and I think that, again, these are races that uh, people think are really, really difficult uh, and aren't necessarily on, uh, you know, they're on the radar screen because they're visible and they can raise money. But at the end of the day, when you're doing the head count to get to 51 in the U.S. Senate, it's not, it's not where it is, right? Um, and, and, but again, I think it's important for the Democratic communities, you know, to get behind uh, these type of candidates. Um, the gubernatorial candidate in Missouri um, is, I, I think, an incredibly attractive candidate. And we've kind of just given up on Missouri, right? I mean, you know, we t- we had that flirtation in 2008 at the presidential level, and then it's kind of like all kind of gone away. Um, and she is an, she's an incredibly, an incredibly attractive candidate. And then as you and I know, you know, I think some of the most important races that will never get any attention are going to be these state legislative races. I mean, if we can take the House back in North Carolina and in Michigan, where we have Democratic governors and these these GOP legislatures fuck with our Democratic governors every day and take their powers away and sue them for just ridiculous things. If you can get one chamber, then all of a sudden the Republicans have to come to the table and get really good things done. Right. Like if 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 the North Carolina state state house turns Democratic, then all of a sudden maybe you can get Medicaid expansion in North Carolina. And that is really, really impactful stuff. Uh, and that, that that's things that we have to we have to be aware of because we want to talk about the presidential races and it's super important and it, the stakes couldn't be higher. Uh, but, man, there's a, there's a lot of work to do uh, in the vineyards as well. Well, listen, it, it, it is interesting. It kind of links back to what you're saying, which is, you know, it is kind of a overused expression, but, you know, you, you, you do want to run like you're 10 points behind. And I think as it relates to Joe Biden, you know, either this tightens up and we end up winning a closer race than it looks right now, or we can put a big whooping on this guy, which, you know, uh, means we might, you know, 
the better Joe Biden does, you know, the more likely it is that we can win back the Senate, the more likely it is we can win back some of these chambers, because you never know what the next election cycle will look like. 2022 could be hard, and you just got to maximize, you know, the old Midwestern staying, uh, make uh, hay when the sun's shining. So, John, last question. Um, survey research, uh, the science of it, and even the art of it's changed so much during your career. Um, I'm just curious, when, when you're uh, undertaking surveys or uh, doing qualitative work right now, um, doing it in the midst of a pandemic, are there uh, unique, unique challenges? Maybe have there been opportunities? Just what's changed or has nothing changed? I'm just curious about that. Well, it has. Uh, one is changed for the better. Like during the pandemic, our production rates, like we're getting people on the phone. Like I, I was kidding the other day saying it's like polling now is like polling in the 80s. Everyone is like a, you know, older senior woman from uh, Iowa, you know, rural <laughs> Iowa, picking right. up the phone. I mean, it really feels that way, right? And so we're, we're getting, I think, in some ways, like better data, right? Because our production rates in, are up because people are willing uh, to answer the phone. Now, on the flip side of it, the qualitative is very difficult, right? And all of a sudden, if you participated in a Zoom focus group, it's more like an interrogation, like it's like a one-on-one because of you know, you got to ask a question and one person can answer where in a focus group, you get a kind of a dynamic. And so we're doing more online um, uh, qualitative, like, you know, even like what we call qual boards, which are three day focus, focus groups, not you don't see the person, they just answer questions at their own pace. So the qualitative becomes more difficult. It's like I miss the back of uh, David Binder's head, right? You know, who we just would watch focus group after focus group. (laughs) And it's such rich, important data. I mean, and, and we are missing a little bit of that. I mean, we don't have the dynamic that we normally would get on a week by week basis hearing what voters have to say, because it is really difficult doing a uh, focus group uh, uh, by Zoom. Let me just tell you. Right. That's a really helpful overview. Well, listen, uh, Anzo, thanks for being with us. Uh, best of luck over the next 103 days. Uh, you're going to be part of the team, hopefully, that removes the threat of Donald Trump from the Oval Office and instills a, a terrific uh, president in Joe Biden. Uh, but I think I certainly learned a lot from our conversation today. So thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. Thank, listen, thanks for your 30-something year friendship. And thanks for what you and a lot of your organizations do day to day, to day as well. It's, it's going to be important. Uh, to get everyone over the finish line. And uh, we'll see you in November, brother. All right, man. Take care. Thanks. So I I certainly learned, you know, quite a bit uh, from that conversation with John Anzalone. Um, You know, one loved hearing that they're seeing what public polls are also suggesting that the third party vote share this time looks like it's going to be lower, more near historical averages. That's incredibly important because it's much easier for Donald Trump to get to 47 uh, than it is 49. Uh, and if he has to get the 49 or 50 to win, that is a harder burden for him right now, given where the race is than Joe Biden. So it was great to see that. Uh, great to see, you know, their view of some of these southern battleground states. Um, you know, Florida is going to be close. It's always close. Uh, North Carolina as well. But but really, uh, you know, to hear John talk about Georgia as all, almost like it is like North Carolina uh, means it should be really, really close and, and, and something we should all pay close attention to. And that's great for those of you uh, in Georgia who almost 
uh, elected Democratic governor in Stacey Abrams in, in 2018, you may have an opportunity um, to turn Georgia blue on the presidential map. Uh, and that could not be more exciting. Uh, interesting to hear from John uh, that, yeah, there, there still are voters out there, even voters who might be right now saying they're going to vote for Biden, who need to learn a lot more about him. And his view that the campaign both understands that and has a good plan to execute on that. And really that, you know, I think his point that, you know, Donald Trump's very unfavorable rating is so high. And unlike in 16, where Hillary's is also high, you know, Joe Biden's very unfavorable uh, is lower, more more like you might traditionally see for a nominee, where it's mostly just members of the other party who are stating that view. So, you know, that's something that, you know, if Donald Trump heads into this election with a very unfavorable, it's at 47 now nationally, it could even grow 49.50. Um, and if Biden's able to keep his number, let's say in the 30s, that's a big advantage. So hopefully you learned a lot about where the election it is today and uh, how to view this race in a little bit more uh, detail at that level. Um, So thanks for tuning in and look forward to being with you uh, next week on Campaign HQ.